This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Welcome to Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Tommy. And I'm Addie. And you're listening to Series 8, Episode 20, Eyes in the Dark. And let's start it off with a couple announcements. Uh, first off, it's the finale. We did it. Woo! Series 8 is coming to an end. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We hope you've had as much fun during this series as we had recording it because we love this system and we're really excited to share this finale with you. Our second announcement is that there's no words with the GM this week. We've been asking you guys to send in your questions to us about this series. And after the actual play portion of the episode is over, stick around. We're going to go right into post-game chatter. We're going to uh, have a little quick chat with the cast, and then we're going to answer your questions. Uh, So if you sent in a question, we did answer it. Postgame Chatter is one of our favorite parts of the series. And also, we got so many questions this time. Thank you guys so much. We're so happy to answer them, and we had a blast doing it. And just to give a rundown of how things are going to go, transitioning from Series 8 to Series 9, next week, we won't be releasing an episode. We will instead be releasing the blooper reel for Series 8. Any silly uh, little antics that didn't quite make it on the air, we're going to share them with you on a short little track next week. To tide you over until the fo- the week after that, when Series 9 begins, the world premiere of our homebrew RPG, Manifest, to be coming to Kickstarter in early 2019. Go check it out. Sci-fi Western, tons of fun. We're, we're pulling out all the stops for this one, and we're super excited to share it with you. We've been working on this for a few years now. And actually, that's all we have for announcements. Thank you so much for listening to Series 8, and uh, we can't wait to share the finale with you. So without further ado, let's move on into Series 8, Episode 20, Eyes in the Dark. Enjoy! The last time we left our heroes, they had landed on the secret planet in the er, the deep core secret planet of Cinder One, where the Empire has a facility harboring a weapon tailor-made to destroy the population of Coruscant. Sneaking through the facility, they took out the Sentinel droids in their way and found out exactly the nature of this weapon. Turns out it is a living creature, an augmented clone of a monstrous being known as the Zillow Beast, a creature that during the Clone Wars was set loose upon Coruscant and over the course of just a few hours nearly wiped out an entire district. This clone of the Zillow Beast is augmented and even more terrifying than the one that befell Coruscant so many years ago. They are above the containment chamber where they believe the Zillow Beast is residing. In order to regain control over this facility, they need to enter that chamber and restore the two disrupted ion generators below. As they came to the realization of what they were up against, the door to this control center opened up and the two surviving members of Reaper Squad, Commander Rissa Anaro and the pilot Miri Elson, stand there, weapons drawn, 
pointed at the group, and Rissa shouted out, echoing in the chamber, This ends now. What do you guys do? I draw my blaster. I'll step in front of Tan, in between uh, her and the remnants of Reaper Squad, and I'm going to um, uh, activate my protect force power on myself. An average discipline combined force power check. Um, I got one success and one advantage. Uh, so you step in front of Tan and put up your hand, and before you have a chance to say anything, uh, Miri Elson fires first. Uh, she hits you for six damage. Uh, it does no damage. Okay, the combination of your force power and the armor you're wearing renders her shots meaningless. Uh, Without even igniting your lightsaber, you raise your hand and the first shot hits your hand and seems to do no damage. And the other two shots hit you across the chest and just fizzle out. You don't even flinch as they bounce off of of the force energy and, and armor you're wearing. It should end now. Miri looks shocked. Tan moves probably to take another shot and Rissa steps in front of Miri. Look at what you've done. Look at where you are. What I see of... You're at the end of the galaxy, alone, with literally nothing. You walked in here to die. Please don't make us kill you. What I see are traitors of the Empire in a classified facility committing treason. Oko, show her what this facility is for. I project a hologram of the original Zillabeast attack on Coruscant. Below us is that beast, aimed at Coruscant... To ruin it again. Traitorous lies. Is that what you truly believe? Over your entire history with the Empire, how truthful has Admiral Kenton been with you? Uh, Elkiri, you can roll a charm test. Uh, It will be opposed uh, with a difficulty of daunting with three challenge dice. You can have a boost from your allies supporting what you're saying. You can have two boosts from the footage of the Zillow Beast and the evidence scrolling beside it showing like images of like this station's findings and whatnot. And uh, you will have two setbacks uh, due to their loyalty to the Empire and the fact that you guys killed the equivalent of their family. I reduce uh, both setbacks. I'm going to downgrade the difficulty of this due to being very congenial. And I will flip a destiny point to upgrade. And I'm using my influence power. To just eke out that little bit more personality. Go ahead and roll it. I have a triumph, two successes, four advantages, and a despair. So... The uh, evidence floats across the room in in hologram imagery projected from Oko's face. And Rissa looks at it and starts to lower her blaster rifle, mouth slightly agape as she starts to zero in on the footage of the original Zillow Beast. And then Miri says to her, Commander Inaro, you don't. You're not believing this, right? These are lies. They're, They're scum. And uh, Rissa, like, fully lowers her blaster rifle and says, I don't think they're lying, Miri. And then Miri looks betrayed, angered, and then she looks at you guys. 
and she steps forward and takes a few more shots at um, Elkiri. I have a defense of five. Uh, she hits you for seven damage, Elkiri. I'm going to reflect. Okay. Uh, that reduces the damage below your soak value. So uh, this time you do ignite your lightsaber and you deflect the few shots. I am going to shoot her. Okay. Go ahead and roll that. She has adversary one and two defense. And I will flip a dark side point to upgrade your difficulty here. That is one success and one advantage with a triumph. That is nine damage. Okay. Uh, what do you want to do with that triumph? Uh, yeah, I'd like to knock the blaster out of her hand. All right. Uh, you hit her in the arm, uh, making her uh, stop shooting and grab at it. And then in that moment when she like kind of lowers and extends her, her firing arm, you shoot the blaster out of her hand and she grabs her hand. And then before she has a chance to do anything else, Rissa Anaro hits her in the back of the head with the butt of her rifle and Miri Elson goes down. And then Rissa catches her and is holding her limp body in one arm and pointing at you guys with the blaster in the other arm and makes eye contact with you directly, Elkiri. We're dead. Go home. Mission accomplished. And she starts to, like, back up, still pointing the rifle at all of you, uh, every once in a while, like, panning it over towards Tan, who's sitting there with fire in her eyes. And she goes, do me a favor. Don't leave this place standing as you go. She shoulders Miri up onto her, onto her shoulder. Consider the empire that built it. She purses her lips like she's not sure what to say to that, and then the door shuts, blocking her off from you. <laughs> Dudo sits there, his lightsaber still ignited for a, little, a second longer, and then he turns it off, turns to Jaxmar, and nods as if to say, they're going. Good. We have work to do. I access the elevator to take us down to the malfunctioning ion engines. You uh, press a few buttons on the console. Uh, you feel the floor uh, hum uh, as it begins to move, and it lowers down. Uh, you watch as the walls of this uh, room you're in uh, slide upwards, opening you up into a large, open, dark chamber. What little light you can see uh, coming from the room you're leaving uh, extends to let you kind of tell that the ceiling of this room is domed and wide. And you dip down, and after a few seconds of the platform you're on lowering automatically, it reverts to manual control, and you hover there in this dark chamber. Looking over the edge, you can't see the bottom, save for two distantly separated, crackling pockets of ion energy as you float there you hear a low ominous rumbling growl what do you do i will step up to take a look at the control panel uh this is a mobile hover platform not actually too unlike the ones you saw in the capitol building of tarvo you would be using the pilot planetary skill to operate it yeah this looks familiar enough uh i'm gonna go ahead and direct it over towards one of the Ion engines. Dudo exchanges another glance with Jaxamar, tightening the grip on his lightsaber. You can't see it, Jaxamar, but you feel you can feel the hair standing up on Dudo's neck. He's so tense and poised and ready. Uh, I look back at him. I've got a bad feeling about this. 
The platform hovers, angling down slowly, deeper into the darkness. The, uh, the view each of you has of each other gets dimmer and darker. The light from above getting further away, now just the light of the consoles in Oko's face. Uh, and the crackling energy below you, giving you just a little bit of an outline of each other. And that's when, in the pure shadows beside you, two glowing malevolent green eyes appear. And as Oko turns their head in that direction, you see the outline of a massive toothy maw and a round carapace of a face as the Zillow beast is there. Oko, just glancing at this, you know it is bigger and more dangerous than the one that was on Coruscant. The one on Coruscant measured roughly 97 meters in height. This large serpent-like creature reaches upwards of 200 meters in size. It has four long armored limbs, each with three fingers, and one extra arm protruding from its back where its shoulder blades would be. And in addition to that, it has a large spined tail with eight gigantic sharp spikes making it into almost a massive spaceship-sized mace. It is extraordinary. And it lets out a roar directly in your, in your face. Actually, the force of it pushing the, the repulsor lift just a little bit as spittle and, and heat wash over you. I need everyone to roll initiative. Remember how I said I want to be an organic? I want to be that. (laughs) (laughs) Did anyone get better than a three? I got a 3.1. So the Zillow Beast will act first, then the rest of you, and then the Zillow Beast will get an additional turn at the end of the round. Tan, it is going to try and swat this repulsor lift out of the sky. Defensive one for defensive driving. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This thing will hit you for... 11 damage, and it will ensnare you, grabbing onto this repulsor pod with its claws, pulling you down uh, as it drops onto three of its four legs. This repulsor pod is considered immobilized, which means you cannot take any maneuvers with it. Uh, In order to escape, you have to spend an action uh, rolling a hard piloting check to break out of its grasp. As it crushes down its three-fingered fist, gripping on uh, on this repulsor pod, sending sparks uh, all around. All of you kind of have to move to the side to not get crushed, and you get yanked down. You have to grab onto each other and the uh, consoles around you to prevent yourself from being thrown off of this thing. Now it's your guys' turn. I'm too enthralled by the beast. I do not hold on to the pod. Okay, roll a coordinations check for me. You are unable to fly, but you do have your repulsor pod, so the platform gets pulled away from you, and you kind of float there for just a second as you then begin to descend slowly at first, but then more quickly and more quickly. And you're going to have to really push your repulsors into into overdrive to prevent yourself from just shattering on the ground below you. Uh, This will be a daunting coordination check. Four successes and two threat. Uh, So you take two strain as you overheat your repulsors uh, to slow your fall as you get to the bottom. Uh, You land sliding down a large energy conduit 
that runs curving along the bottom and walls of this chamber. And you kind of slide down that and plop down in between two of these massive metal tubes uh, that seem to lead up to one of the damaged generators. My resolve talent will reduce the strain by one. And having landed, I will maneuver towards one of the ion generators. Okay. If you use your entire turn, you'll be able to get to it uh, so that you can act on it next turn. I do. Who wants to go next? With the beast in close, I will turn to Tan. Get to the generator. I'm going to try and buy you some time, and I will make my way to run up the arm of this beast. All right. That will take either an athletics or a coordination check to not uh, slide off of this beast as it is writhing and moving around. Uh, We'll call it a hard check. I will spend a destiny point to upgrade this check. Okay. No successes, two advantages on coordination. Okay, Uh, so you run a short distance away from the hovercraft, and the beast's arm is not entirely cylindrical. It's uh, almost flat on the top and the bottom with like kind of a curved side, and it twists its arm, and you are on a sheer slope, and you can't get any further than that. Uh, You slide down, uh, but with your two advantages, you're able to grab onto one of the edges of its... uh, of its ridged armoring, and uh, you dig your finger your fingers into there and stop yourself from plummeting down, but you are now effectively immobilized until you change your situation. Uh, and uh, because you are hanging, like any attacks or anything you do will be at uh, will have a setback. Uh, I will suffer two strain to aim, and then I will strike at this beast probably trying more to get its attention than anything else, and I will ebb. Okay, are you aiming uh, to add a boost, or are you aiming to try and attack an area where the armor is weaker? I will aim for where Oko's pointed out that its armor is weaker. Okay, Uh, so that will add a couple setbacks, and this uh, creature has adversary two. I will activate sense danger, and I will remove two of those setbacks from this check. Okay. I deal nine damage. The... Zillow Beast will add three automatic failures to any check it makes before the end of my next turn. Uh, And I will spend two of my three advantages to crit, and I will send the last advantage forward as a boost. Okay, go ahead and crit. Uh, That is 93. All right, that is the critical injury at the brink, which means every time this creature performs an action, it will suffer a strain. So, uh, Jaxmar, you're hanging there on the arm. You kind of plant one foot against uh, against this arm as you're, like, b- dangling upside down, and you pull and jam your lightsaber underneath that plate of armor. Uh, it doesn't go very deep, and you feel a ton of resistance, but uh, there's a gross burning smell, and the creature lets out a loud roar that vibrates in the ears of everyone in the room as it echoes in this large spherical chamber. Who wants to go next? Can I try to loosen its three fingers with move? You can target three silhouette two uh, objects with move. I'm totally fine with you attempting to make it let go of this hovercraft uh, by using the force to loosen its grip. Uh, So this will be a hard discipline check with the move power included. So I generate four light side points. Two successes with two triumphs and two threat. Okay, well, the two threat is easy. You will take two strain 
as you uh, step forward, uh, one hand holding on to a railing, the other hand reaching out through the force. Uh, this beast lets out a roar, and you feel the force between its fingers and uh, and this vehicle, and you push uh, with your willpower, uh, making it let go. What did you want to achieve with the triumph? I think I move the arm in such a way that Jaxamar ends up where he wants to be um, as as the, the pod is released. Sure, it almost kind of shoves the pod away, rearing its arm back. Uh, Jaxamar, where do you want to land? I would like to land on top of its head. Okay, there's a couple spikes there, so... Uh, uh, as it raises its arm up, uh, you see your moment of opportunity and kick off of the arm, uh, dropping and grabbing onto one of those large horns uh, and position yourself cleanly on top of this thing's head. I will take a guarded stance with my maneuver. So Tan and Dudo are the only two remaining to go. Okay, Oko, I'm taking us down. Oko? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Oko? You say that and you glance down and you see like way below you a little glowing face heading towards one of the two generators. Poodoo. I'm going to swoop us in towards the generator Oko's headed for. Cool, yeah. You land there with a maneuver, easily enough. So I'm going to slide the the pod up to the generator with the maneuver. Sure. And as it's a I... hot landing, but you make it work. As I do so, I will drop to one knee and take two strain and uh, swing around and prepare the rocket launcher on my shoulder. Okay. Uh, and shoot it at the Silla Beast. All right. <laughs> uh, this will be a gunnery check. Uh, it will be easy because this creature is so large. Uh, however, it is adversary too. That is two successes and one advantage. So that will be 15 damage, and I will send that advantage forward as a boost. So you kneel down and fire off a concussive missile. It zooms down, arcs upward, upward and hits this thing right in uh, its chest. It pulls back, thrashing against the feeling of Jaxamar on its head, uh, and uh, the, the missile explodes against its carapace, seeming to do nothing. And uh, it reacts a little bit to it, like it didn't like it, but uh, you're not sure you actually did any damage. Dudo will drop his rocket launcher off his shoulder, leap off of the uh, hovercraft as it is still skidding to a halt, and land uh, nearby Oko. Uh, right there, there's a massive amount of ion energy just arcing off of this. Uh, you see it hitting these conduits and shooting uh, surges of energy up these conduits that uh, you can see the glow of the energy arcing up far away, curving up and hitting up to the top where the uh, rest of the station is. Uh, and Dudo, uh, in, a, in a maneuver you actually somewhat remember from when he was aboard the Excipitor during the Clone Wars, he reaches out with the Force and uh, tries to arc the energy away from you so you can better access this damaged generator. Oko, you are now protected against this ion energy. Uh, you have five additional soak against it and two additional defense against it for the next time that it, uh, that it would damage you. Master Nguyen, my thanks. He looks so strained 
Like he shouldn't be able to do this anymore. Like he only has one force rating and it's a force three power. <laughs> He's arcing it and sweating profusely uh, and he can't muster the energy to respond or even acknowledge that you said anything to him. The Zillow Beast drops its uh, front arms down uh, landing all four legs on the ground and Jaxamar, uh, the fifth arm that is on its shoulder blade looms above you and reaches to try and grab onto you. I will dodge and upgrade the difficulty of its check. I also have one defense. Due to the force ebbing around you, it reaches, uh, trying to get a feel for where you are, and it grabs just a little bit to your left, and its fingers scrape along its uh, along the back of its head and down its neck, barely missing you. You dodge in between them, uh, and it kind of grips down on nothing, and it gets to go again. Uh, as it does this, it spins its body around that giant spiked mace of a tail swinging uh, towards where the hovercraft uh, landed, uh, swinging just over your head, Tan, and at you, Elkiri. Elkiri, you place your lightsaber in front of your energy buckler and uh, slide down and um, get pushed back almost off of the... uh, almost off of the hovercraft, but you take no damage as this thing just was inches away from skewering you with its giant uh, spiked tail. Uh, And the tail, uh, Tan, you almost get knocked down with the wind of the swing. And it's your guys' turns. Seeing that the concussive grenade did nothing, I am going to drop this rocket launcher as an incidental Uh, And I will grab the toxin missile launcher that uh, Dudo dropped and prepare it and take another shot. Sure thing. Right before I take a shot, I double check to make sure Jaxamar has his mask on, his respirator. (laughs) He does. Everyone's everyone's respirators are still on. That's three successes, one advantage, and a despair. I will pass that one advantage forward as a boost. Okay. I need to roll a resilience check for the Zillow Beast against this toxin. You fire this missile. It strikes true just like under the arm socket of its left forearm, and green gas uh, spews from the explosion, kind of seeming to seep into the armor of this thing, uh, sticking to it. It lets out a shout uh, and roars and swings wildly, its tail swooping back overhead. Uh, it did not like that at all. And you kind of like pump your fists in celebration, seeing that you've like affected this thing. And then you go to prepare a second rocket and uh, there's a big like red error screen on the targeting. And uh, you're going to have to open this thing up and dislodge a jammed rocket. And uh, who wants to go next? I'll go. I'm going to look around and seeing that there's like nothing loose in this area at all. Uh, I will see the rockets on Oko's back and I would like to use the move force power to hurdle them and a thermal detonator at a point on the Zillow Beast. Okay, go ahead and roll that power. So I hit with one success and 
two advantages. Uh, can I use those advantages to do the concussive uh, rockets disorient? Yeah. Cool. You sure can. Uh, so I need to roll a resilience check really quick for it. So with the force still ebbing around this thing uh, and it reeling from the shot from Tan, uh, it turns and the thermal detonator hits it in its uh, in one of its back legs, uh, detonating, and you see it st- uh, step back and react to it way more fiercely than it did the concussive missile, but not nearly as much as it reacted to the poison. And then the concussive missile zooms up and hits it in the chin. Uh, Jaxmar, you get a jolt as this kinetic energy launches the Zillow Beast's head upwards. It doesn't seem to do any damage, but the thing does seem a bit disoriented from that uh, direct hit to its head. And then uh, as it's reeling from those two explosions, kind of opening itself up, you hit it right in the middle of the abdomen uh, with the gas missile. And that green, sickly gas explodes again, kind of wrapping itself around its uh, around this thing's massive torso so and seeping into uh, into its body and it lets out another uh, another roar as it stumbles back and lands down on all fours the entire chamber shaking and rumbling with the force of it who wants to go next as the head of this creature launches me up a little bit i will grab my lightsaber in both hands and just stab downwards and I will suffer too strain to spend two maneuvers aiming for another weak point in the armor. Okay. And I will use flow as I strike down. I miss, uh, but I generate five advantages, which I will send forward as boosts and I will flip a destiny point and take one conflict to use the two dark side points I generated to ask you a yes or no question. Okay. Is this creature evil? No. I will attempt to repair the ion generator. Okay. Jaxamar, you stab down in the thing. It's still reeling. You don't quite dig into it, but you kind of rake your lightsaber along the top uh, of it and uh, and score one of the horns nearby you. And it lets out a shout, stumbling forward a little bit. And um, Oko, one of the arms lands down right nearby you in the generator and some of the ion energy arcs away and onto the the claw of the Zillow Beast. It raises its arm before it can really be horribly affected uh, but you have that that momentary opening where you can move in and and get a little closer uh, with the protection from Dudo and that that will give you a significant boost to this uh, daunting mechanics check you are going to do. Uh, And I will flip a dark side point to upgrade the difficulty here. Five successes, two advantage, and two triumphs. So you swoop in underneath this uh, this arcing ion energy. All your internal programming is telling you to evacuate immediately uh, as even half of this energy pouring into you will fry you completely, leaving you completely inoperable and impossible to repair. Uh, and you zoom in and uh, an arc of ion energy actually does lash out and attach itself to your arm, but you don't feel it as this thin shimmer of force energy pushes it away. And you continue forward, you get to this thing, you uh, you see the energy arc away revealing this damaged generator. It's got a big hole in it um, uh, from probably one of the tail spikes of the Zillow Beast. And uh, you fit perfectly inside this hole. 
your backpack of uh, surgical tools uh, reaches out and starts uh, working on the er uh, the area above you as your two arms and your augmented uh, uh, medical arm work on the one below you. And you reroute uh, energy to a whole bunch of different things. You interface directly with it for a moment. Your screen blips out and then comes uh, and then comes back and the energy pulls in and away and those of you who are away from this generator uh, hear this whoa, 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 uh, energy uh, kind of growing as the generator that's uh, that Oko went into is uh, is dimming in energy and the one on the other side of the sphere is glowing brighter and brighter and then it shoots out and discharges all the overloaded energy, hitting the Zillow Beast, uh, making it stumble back and like drop down to a couple knees. And uh, both generators equalize in power. And you hear, and uh, this giant dome begins to light up as four large rings of lights uh, that span along the sides of this sphere light up. And the Zillabies lets out a roar. Jaxamar, you jump off. And as you do, uh, an almost ray shield of ion energy uh, wraps up around the Zillabiest in a dome. And then um, arcs of ion energy begin to arc down from this dome and hit it. It thrashes around for, for a little bit before stumbling. And then its eyes getting a little sleepier and a little more tired, and it claws out again, pull, uh, touching the edge of this force field around it and pulling back and stumbling back again, and then eventually dropping down and falling completely asleep with arcs of energy continuing to lick its body. And we will drop out of initiative. Oko, you are 100% confident that the station is fully operational. Time to let it out. I will start making my way back to the hover pod. Oko, you okay down there? Fine, Master Tan. How are you? <laughs> I laugh. I'm. We're we're fine, Oko. Uh, we're coming down to get you. Copy. Elkir, you look over and Dudo is uh, down on one knee, panting heavily from the exertion of protecting Oko. Uh, and then he looks up at you and he smiles his usual smile. Uh, I'll go over and help him up, uh, and over to the uh, repulsor pod as well. I hope I did. Uh, the man you remember, Justice. I think you are the man I remember. He chuckles at that and then like grabs at his side and is like, oh, oh, and then sits down uh, on one of the seats of the, of the lift. What do we do now? It's so magnificent a creature. Can we let it free? Not on Coruscant, of course. <laughs> well, we, we have to make doshing sure this thing doesn't take off first. As we start flying upwards on the hover pod... I will turn to Alkiri. I am positive there is a planet we can send this thing where the Empire will not find it. Can you please help me consult Master Fug? Of course. Alkiri, you produce the holocron, and uh, uh, very easily the two of you uh, open it. The image of Jedi Master Grundello Fug appears before you once more. He, uh, he smiles his kind of crooked smile and says, Hello, how may I be of service? Master Fug, I believe we have thwarted the evil in your visions. He looks at you and he goes, that's wonderful to hear. We have need of your expertise. In Chago's database, was there any record of an uninhabited planet the Empire would not find? 
There are plenty of uninhabited planets. Uh, and he uh, waves his hands, and the holographic image uh, expands. And uh, surrounding you on this platform, as it elevates, uh, there's uh, a star map, and he highlights a bunch of them. There, uh, that one. Uh, it is an unnamed forested planet with a composition not too much unlike the Zillow Beast's home planet of Malastare. We can send the creature here. It can live out its life unhindered and free of the Empire's machinations. It is not evil. It is a victim here as well. Uh, well, Oko, what do you say? How about you get this thing out of here? Gladly. Uh, you raise the platform up, redocking it with the control center. The Half of the pod uh, that is still completely intact lights up with uh, all the administrative options uh, you expected, Oko. You hover over to them and easily alter uh, the course. Uh, combined with the map from Grundello Fug and the star maps uh, provided to you of the deep core uh, from Pep Dantor, uh, you give the chance of the Zillow Beast reaching this planet a very high success rate it is done you punch in those uh those coordinates uh you pull back well uh let's get out of here i don't want to go to this planet uh the launch won't launch this uh this chamber that you guys are in uh it's designed to launch the zillow beast out of its chamber uh but you're not uh the control center stays here we have to destroy this facility still if it's left intact they'll simply recreate it I have already disabled the outer shields. The environment may destroy the base. I mean, Oko, you've got explosives, right? Why don't we just make sure? I seem to have misplaced two missiles and a thermal detonator. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shucks, Oko. We're going to have to dock your pay. We haven't been paid in years. As you guys are trying to take inventory of of your gear and try to decide the best way to destroy this facility and leave nothing left... Uh, the door to the control center opens up. And standing there hovering in the door is a sentinel droid. Its face illuminates. Uh, And as if stepping out of the shadows into the face of this droid, you see the scarred, terrifying visage of Emperor Sheev Palpatine. If you wish for this station to be destroyed... I can arrange that, Jedi. We should go. (laughs) (laughs) This project can be replaced. The few remaining Jedi alive cannot. I see this playing out to my advantage. And the droid raises a hand and snaps a finger, and you start hearing uh, alarm klaxons echoing around. I appreciate you restoring my ability to manipulate this station. I will dart forward and attempt to decapitate this droid. Uh, You do, easily enough. We're taking the head with us. I would like the Emperor's signal droid to examine. Sure. You leap forward and he just starts, as you're running forward, igniting a lightsaber, he begins cackling and you cut him off uh, mid-cackle. Slicing, uh, slicing the head off and removing it from, uh, from the droid's body, which drops clanging to the ground. Uh, just a crumple of robes and metal. And the station rumbles. And you hear explosions and more klaxons. I initiate the launch sequence. You do. It 
almost immediately drops the Zillow Beast into a contained capsule that launches at an angle out of the uh, the mountain you're in. Uh, and you can see it on the sensors. It uh, launches a success, and it just shoots out and begins curving along the trajectory you set it on. Also looking at the screen, you see that your escape, the way you came in is beyond destroyed as the uh, mountain itself seems to be crumbling in on itself. Having the schematics, am I aware of another door from this control chamber to another exit? Analyzing this, uh, the schematics, watching as the mountain caves in on itself, starting at the top of the station, you're, that elevator shaft completely crumbling, uh, and the uh, and the launch tube of the Zillow Beast caving in behind it. Uh, this mountain is effectively imploding as the station, the, the fortification of the station around it b- blows up and crushes inward. Uh, analyzing this thoroughly, Oko, you know that you have one option for your companions to survive. And I will flip every dark side point in the destiny pool. One for each of you. <laughs> and... You have two options. You can go into the neighboring chamber where the carbon freezing station is still operational, and you could freeze yourselves in carbonite, and in that state, you will survive the collapse of this station. And should anyone ever excavate it in the future, they could find you and resuscitate you. Option number two is begin saying your goodbyes. I'm afraid there is no escape, but we could yet survive frozen in the carbonite chamber. What? But the ship! (laughs) It is outside. The mountain cannot fall on it. (laughs) Tan does not look comforted by that. There isn't much time. Yeah, the station explodes and rumbles more. The, The... Carbon freezing chamber will only be operational for a little while longer before uh, its power supply is severed. Engage the station. Okay. Certainly. The five of you move into the, uh, into the neighboring chamber, uh, the control center sparking and crumbling in around you. You stand on circular platforms as Oko begins interfacing with, uh, uh, with the wall and sets a timer, basically. Uh, and rushes over. Uh, you guys are kind of in an alcove on the side of this wall, all of you able to kind of look at each other standing in the area where you are about to be frozen in carbonite. You don't know when, if ever, you'll wake up again. You have less than a minute before the process begins and you are put into full carbon hibernation. I hope to see you all again. And if not, death is the most organic thing there is. I look to Dudo. And everyone as well, and say, the Force has reunited me with friends beyond death before. I will see you all again. May the Force be with us. I'm sorry about your ship, Tan. (laughs) (laughs) Tan laughs at that. It's a bit strained, but she laughs. (laughs) Well, Jax, whatever happens, I guess no one can say we weren't big damn heroes. You get a big smile in response. Explosions make the the chamber rumble. The countdown uh, in uh, dropping down almost to the single digits. We've been through this much together. We just have a little bit more to go. Dido nods and says, "See you on the other side." And right as he does, you're all encased in carbonite. And that's where we'll end our campaign. Bah.
Welcome to the Essential NPCs Series 8 post-game chatter. Uh, for those of you who do not listen to Words with the GM and don't know what this is, we have just finished recording the finale of Series 8. Uh, we took a second to like go to the bathroom, refresh our drinks, and then we're sitting down and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the finale, we're going to talk about the campaign and you, the system. Uh, some idea of how the players feel about everything and talk a little bit about what happened there at the end. Uh, and then after we, uh, after we share some of our thoughts, we are going to answer questions from you guys. Uh, so without further ado, let's go Go ahead and get right into it. Starting first with uh, having everyone introduce themselves. Very few of us did any crazy character voices for this series, uh, but just so the listeners can know what voice is associated with which person, uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves in our normal voices. Uh, I am Tommy. I've been the GM this whole time. I talked a lot like this. I'm Addie. I played Alkiri, and I sounded mostly like this. I'm Nick. I was Oko, and I was a little like this. I'm Dan. I played Jaxamar. It was just me, but thinking, what would a Jedi sound like? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bree. I played Tan, and I sounded like this because I'm actually a space pilot. <laughs> IRL. All right. So uh, let's start off with everyone's feelings about the finale. Uh, we uh, we didn't have a words with the GM about episode 19 or 20. So uh, what does everyone think uh, about how the campaign kind of wrapped up? I'm a huge fan of your Star Wars Winter Soldier crossover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as we finished the finale, he just Dan just turned to me and yelled, "We're Captain America, Tommy!" And uh, I thought about it, and, uh, and you know, there is a lot of overlap in those two storylines. I didn't even realize. <laughs> I feel a sense of completion because we finally saw the Zilla Beast that had always <laughs> bothered me disappeared in the Clone Wars and never, nobody ever mentioned again because I'm a huge nerd with stupid, stupid gripes. Yeah, uh, the, the Zilla Beast actually does feature in the animated Clone Wars series. It actually, at the end of it, after being killed on Coruscant, there's a scene where Palpatine like whispers to someone and is like, we must clone it. And and then like it never gets picked up again in any Star Wars lore that I could find. And um, uh, pretty early Early into us starting this campaign, uh, Nick mentioned it offhand because he was rewatching the animated series and was like, you know, they never picked up the Zillow Beast again. That's so stupid. And I, I immediately was like, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm going to expand on that part of Star Wars lore. Yes. Hooray for closure. Yeah. Uh, so now we know what happened to the Zillow Beast. Uh, as for what happened to us, I kind of always knew because Yoda says that there's no Jedi in the galaxy or or something. And, um, and so I knew that like Jax and Alkiri had like a very slim chance of like making it out into like the rebellion times. Um, so I'm happy that we didn't die. But uh, I was I was surprised that um, it wasn't a uh, we sacrifice ourselves for X, Y, Z and Tan and Oko go uh, continue on. Yeah, actually, uh, there was a part of me that considered instead of saying, and that's where we end our campaign, like kind of pausing there in silence for a little while and then saying like sometime later and having there be like an excavation scene. Uh, the idea that popped in my head is like you begin feeling your bodies again. You begin feeling like some senses and you and you hear like as you come out of carbonite, General Organa, we found something. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I didn't want to do that because if we ever do revisit Star Wars, I don't want to lock them into any one future era. 
Yeah, I think it was kind of gut shock for me. Uh, I had just completely forgotten about the fact that we couldn't survive, uh, which is very funny because I love Rogue One. And my husband jokes that I love it because everyone dies at the end, which is kind of true. (laughs) Um, So I should have loved this. And instead I was like, no, Tan's got to get back to the exhibitor. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the most tragic thing about that ending. I did not I did not plan to save the exhibitor in any way. I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, My bad sorry (laughs) (laughs) that's okay but uh what about um the system we played multiple sessions of this uh of this system uh addy and i have talked about it a significant amount in words with the gm but uh in post-game chatter we do always like to go around the table and uh ask every player how they feel about the system and always we want to ask them would they recommend this system to anyone else so i i'm gonna start there because i'm actually the least Star Wars nerd out of this entire group. And yes, 100%. I love it. It was great. It was amazing. It got me so into the Star Wars lore and the Star Wars universe. And um, the dice seem really scary at first, and they're super easy. Uh, didn't believe Tommy when he said that, but it's actually <laughs> true. So yeah, I, would, I definitely recommend this system. I love this system so much. Every time we sit down to record, there's like this little regret in my head that we're playing for the podcast and not playing a home game where we have infinite time to explore all of the options in the system. And they keep releasing books for it. And I keep wanting to use the stuff in the books, but there's no time. And it's so frustrating. I did end up liking it a lot. I was a little slow to warm up to it. Because, like, when you can succeed but have threat, like, that's really cool. I really like succeeding with a cost. When you fail but end up with a ton of advantage, through some of the early play sessions, that just felt really weird and bad for me. But I think I got used to it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I would definitely play it again. Uh, Maybe not all three core books mashed together. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff to read. (laughs) Yeah, and it it can be really hard being like, oh, what book is this one in? (laughs) Yeah. Because, like, when you you tap into, at least when you're at our table, when you tap into one of the core books, you tap into all of the supplement books for that core book as well because we don't know when to stop. (laughs) (laughs) But the system itself is, is really cool. I do like it a lot. Uh, I really love the system. The dice in the system really hate me, (laughs) Um, but I really love it. Uh, A more perfect narrative system I have yet to find because it is uh, just structured enough that you have an idea of what is where you're supposed to be going with the narrative, um, but loose enough that you can make what you want to have happen. And I really appreciate that. I would like to see what it would be like in... in, uh, in a non-Star Wars setting, but uh, still in space. So, yeah, well, they do have the Genesis uh, system from Fantasy Flight, uh, from Fantasy Flight Games, uh, where they uh, incorporate this dice system, uh, but put it in a setting agnostic book, where you can kind of, uh, where you're kind of encouraged to create your own talent trees and uh, and set it in whatever uh, setting you want, whether it be a different sci-fi universe or like fantasy or anything. Um, I myself love this system, and I actually think part of that is because of its relationship to Star Wars. Because I think when they built out the system, they did a beautiful job of blending the mechanics that they wanted with thematic things that tied directly into the 
Star Wars universe. Things like the Destiny Pool, you know, fl- like it feels really great watching as like the dark side and the light side like push back and forth against each other. The way like force dice work in and uh, the way Jedi's like conflict and morality works, like all of these are mechanics that were very obviously inspired by the Star Wars lore. Uh, so there's like this beautiful blend of theme and uh, crunch uh, in the mechanics. And then on top of that, it excels 100% at what it says it does, which is creates cinematic moments. In no other system uh, do I always feel like the action is moving forward. The way that threats and advantages kind of always make it so when you roll, something happens. It actually is like crazy disappointing and rare when you roll a complete wash and you're like, oh, so nothing happens. Like, that's so rare and unfortunately just a a fluke of probability. Uh, But more often than not, you have threat, you have advantage and cool things can happen. And I love triumphs and despairs. I love how how fun it is. The one thing that disappointed me with doing this for the podcast was that um, a lot of the table talk gets cut out of the Essential NPCs podcast to keep the narrative flowing. But there were times uh, where one of us wouldn't know what like either I as the GM or one of the players wouldn't know what they wanted to do with advantages or triumphs. We'd kind of pull away from the mic for a second and be like, does anyone have an idea? I'm blanking. And like we'd spend like 15 seconds like bouncing ideas around. Someone at the table would have a cool idea. We'd be like, okay, cool, let's do that. And then we'd introduce it uh, as if it was, uh, as if it came to us relatively quickly for the purposes of moving the podcast forward. But I think that's an aspect of the system that is super fun. It, it like it, ties everyone together into this like this idea that we're creating a narrative together we want to have cool things happen and i could go on and on about the system i think it's great it's definitely up there in one of my top systems um i agree with nick in the uh in the core book jumping around like i like it with all three but also i think an edge of the uh, a pure edge of the empire campaign like basically just firefly in this system that'd be dope uh something that i was wondering is um is there an archetype that you didn't play that you would like to have played? If I may have the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, as, like I said earlier, like they kept coming out with new books and they kept having things I wanted to do. And there just wasn't enough experience or time left in the podcast to try them out. So I spent a lot of time looking at different talent trees in this book. And there's all kinds of really cool characters you can play. I thought of like basically a force wizard with a bunch of the mystic and consular trees with super high force rating, just shooting lightning out of his hands. And you can totally do that in this. They just came out with a warrior book, which has uh, this really awesome lightsaber tree based around manipulating the destiny pool to like make it easier to be a warrior when the light side is high and make you hit harder when the dark side is high. And there's just so many cool things you can make in this system and I spend a lot of my free time thinking about RPG characters. So, like, the system is incredible for that. Yeah, I want to do magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of Valkyrie's powers seemed really cool. I would totally make a Jedi who just moves everything all the time. Maybe in some sneaky ways. <laughs> I will say, for all the characters I made, it never once occurred to me to play this game and not make a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the original character that I was going to play for the podcast is the one that I would want to make. Uh, my first idea was actually like this, like mechanic sapper character, just like hucking bombs and like fixing chips. Um, and I, uh, 
I uh, would love to do that. Also, uh, I would love to do the like steel hand adept. Um, I love the the like fighting style fr- uh, that Kira has in Solo, and I I love that like aesthetic. And I would totally play that character. Yeah, I mean, same goes for me. If I made a character like I want to just punch with the force, that's dope. <laughs> uh, so uh, same for me, being like a, a being like a steel hand adept, whether I was like actually a Jedi or just a force sensitive, doesn't matter to me. So I basically got to play a mashup of Han Solo and Poe Dameron, which is kind of the best thing that I could have played. I was extremely happy with who Tan was. So it would be tough for me to choose another character. I think if I did play a Jedi, it would be really fun, but I would be a very bad Jedi because <laughs> uh, I'm very bad at being good, like really good. And um, I don't know if you guys know it, but these guys were light side paragons for like almost the entire time. But I think I would, I'd be a droid, actually. Yeah, I'd really love to just get that snark in there and get to fire off a lot of mouthy quips. Yeah, great job playing uh, playing a droid, oh, Nick. That's great. That was... Everybody underestimates you. <laughs> You're immune to all these poisons and stuff that are everywhere. <laughs> and you get to be a skill jockey. That's true. So many skills. I rolled so many dice so early. <laughs> But we have quite a few questions from the listeners. We want to get straight into that. Uh, We recorded the finale a little while ago, and unfortunately, by the time it releases and we are able to answer your questions, Dan will be out of the state. And so he will have to Skype in for this second part of Post Game Chatter where we respond to your uh, to your questions. So without further ado, let's start. uh, Let's start answering your guys's questions. Dan, I hope I hope you have a safe move. (laughs) And now through the power of movie magic, I am in a computer now. (laughs) Okay, our first set of questions come from Mark. Mark wanted to know what everyone thought about the system. He also asks, what difficulties did you have and what was the most enjoyable about it? We kind of touched on that pretty heavily during uh, the first part of Post Game Chatter, but did anyone else have anything to add? P- particularly, we didn't really talk about things that were difficult for us. Was there anything that someone would classify as like a difficulty for uh, the system? I think the most difficult thing about this system is choosing if you're going to spend your (laughs) XP in your talent tree or maybe multiple talent trees or if you're going to spend it on skills. That's that was what was hard for me. Yeah, I would second the XP expenditure. Um, I could I hate having to spend more in non career skills. I hated it. So I just never it. I couldn't take the tax, and so I just never put XP into skills that weren't in a career, uh, and that was pretty tough. Uh, Mark's next question was uh, uh, was asking, was this anyone's first time with the system? Uh, I had played one short uh, Edge of the Empire campaign with a different group that went off the rails, but it's still really fun. Nice. Uh, Mark also asks, how hard was it to pick up the mechanics of the narrative dice? It's really easy. It really is. And they sound like just another way to get your money, but it's really worth it. It's a great system. I would totally recommend it. I now have two packs of Genesis dice and the Genesis core book in my house. (laughs) His next question is, after playing 
at night level, do you think it would be hard to make a basic beginner character? Uh, so we mentioned in one of the words with the GM kind of what night level play is, but to refresh the audience, in the Force and Destiny core rulebook, there's an option for night level play where everyone starts with more XP, uh, specifically so that you can make Jedi characters uh, who can uh, invest some points into some Force powers and, and have a little bit more leeway because Jedi are pretty spread thin at the beginning of the game. I could totally make a basic beginner character, whether I would like super enjoy it. I don't know. It would it would really depend on the story because it's such a narrative system. I think making a group who accidentally like falls into like some crazy Star Wars situation would be totally fine. Um, I would definitely make like a very basic first level character for a home game where we have all the time to like really get to what that character can become after a lot of time, but I would have hated it for the podcasts because by the end of the campaign, me and El Kiri would have been about like as powerful as we were in like the seventh episode at the finale, which would have sucked. Yeah. I also like that starting at night, uh, just in general gave us more dice to roll, which means we get more critical hits and like the really cool effects from that. So yeah, starting the base game would be not ideal, at least for me. <laughs> His next question is, how hard was it to build and play advanced characters, especially if this was your first time playing the system? Um, once you figure out how to build a basic character, at least for me, it kind of takes you through all the steps. And then it's just deciding where to put your XP. Um, it's 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 similar to um almost any other RPG in that way where like if you've got the basics down, uh building an advanced character, uh you may not build the like most optimized character ever but you're going to build a character that hopefully you enjoy playing so as long as as long as you can like get through that that zero xp character and and get going i think i think that it's not so hard it's kind of like going on a shopping spree you just get to buy all the cool stuff right away he also asks what do you think of morality duty and obligation do you have a favorite or a least favorite for me personally, I love all of them. Uh, and in my crazy GMing way, I think if I played a home game, I might try to incorporate all three just to be a friggin' madman. I think my favorite would actually be duty because when duty triggers, like when someone, like when you roll the dice and that pops up, it's a good thing, right? That person's really feeling their, their, their like loyalty to the rebellion. They, they get like more wounds and like, it kind of like works as a very simple plot hook. Like if your duty is intelligence collection and it comes up, like it makes it really easy for me as a GM to just drop it in there. Uh, and, and as I've said in words with the GM before, I think if you have Jedi, you have to include morality. Otherwise there's not even the illusion of a consequence for being a bad Jedi. He then asks, would you play the system again? Which we uh, talked at length about during the first part of uh, post-game chatter. We all love the system. We want to play it again right now. Um, and uh, he also wanted to know what is another fun character idea, which we like the system so much, we answered that before we even knew he was asking it. Then Mark asks, what era sounds the most fun to play in? Yeah, so I absolutely love the old Bioware and Obsidian Knights of the Old Republic games for the original Xbox. They were like the first things that kind of got me into the Star Wars expanded universe. And had I been running this series, we 100% would have played there. I think it's all super rad. 
and there's a Jedi on every corner and a Sith around every dark alley, and it's awesome. Uh, Mark also wanted to know what method uh, and rate did you use for giving XP? I kind of did a flat rate for this one. Um, The XP or the XP rewards in the book are a little hard to interpret, um, but it kind of seemed like you always would hit like around 10 to 15 XP in a session, more or less. And uh, for the podcast, we qualify a session as two episodes. Then Mark's final question is, what was the morality level of the Jedi at the end of the campaign? Did anyone reach Paragon status? 102 Paragon, bitches. <laughs> uh, I was a better Jedi than Jaxamar at the end. <laughs> she rolled so good on her morality dice. She generated so much more conflict than me and always rolled really well. And the times I generated, like, two conflict... I rolled a two and got no morality, <laughs> and I still ended up at, like, 90-something. Our next question is from Derek. Has Essential NPCs ever considered doing a graphic novel based on the show or one of the adventures? Uh, he's enjoyed listening to the show and could see it in a few different formats. It's definitely not something we've actively considered, but it sounds super cool. And honestly, if we had, like, a budget and could have this show be animated a la Harmon Quest or something like that, I would hands down do that. That sounds so cool. But it's kind of a passion project for us, and we none of us are super artistically talented Patreon in that Patreon subscribers, little cardboard cutouts of the of the art, and we just sort of move them around. Yeah, there sticks. we go. Yeah, and <laughs> we'll do a puppet theater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our next question comes from Ben. This one's uh, for me. Since Shamash Bell sold out the Hydean Underground, how many other runners did Reaper Squad capture or destroy? Specifically, is the Pixis and her crew still flying free? (laughs) Uh, I'm actually going to budge in and not let Tommy answer. I just have to let everyone know that the Pixis is fine. Uh, So is her crew, because somehow, someway... Tudge and Steve and and uh, and the rest of the crew just like bumbled their way to safety. Um, you know, someone didn't look up or something, and it, everything was fine. Yeah, I mean, the crew of the Pixis operates on different rules. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, the Pixis was a reference to Series 3, Uncharted Worlds. Uh, and in that system, it's really hard to fail. So so I'm pretty sure they're fine. Uh, they are way more consistently competent than any other group of characters in any other system. <laughs> Ben's next question is for the table. Uh, was there one thing you wish you had explored further? For example, Oko getting an organic body. I'm not going to say no, but I don't have any ideas for how that really would have gone much further. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty disturbing seeing Dito almost turn into a machine. I can't imagine watching Oko being turned into a person. <laughs> Maybe that turned them off of it. Maybe. Yeah. Our next questions come from Cody. Uh, I enjoy the work you guys do, and I was curious how all the game masters in the group make their responses to things like dice results so tailored to the player. I'm an inexperienced GM, and anytime I try, it comes out different than I wanted. Any tips as to how to make this better? It seems like the question is referring to like the way we narrate things to try and like uh, to try and build up a. Uh, Uh, build up the tension of certain roles or have one role lead to another. And uh, I at least know for me, like to use a combat sequence as an example, uh, 
uh, whenever I'm doing it, I like I have a visual image in my head, and um, this system helps a lot with like making it so you know when they roll threat, I go okay, well what could happen here? Uh, yeah, you start stumbling and like you're you're pushed up against this wall, and then like I leave it at that, and then when I come back around to that character and they end up like failing a roll with like a despair, I'm like okay, well since you're pushed up against the wall, they like slam your head into it and you take extra strain damage, right? I, I remember like the key points of the thing I said before, and then try to uh, see if there's a way at all for me to build on the where I left that specific character's narration and pick it up again. It's all, it's all like it's like I have a movie in my head of a scene and it keeps stopping and freezing until the next dice roll happens and then I resolve it and then I stop and freeze it and the next dice roll happens and then I resolve it trying to like maintain where like the scene composition and like the blocking and like where people are in relation to each other. So uh, another thing uh, you can do, like Tommy's way better at narrating melee combat than I am. So one thing I do when I'm GMing, kind of going off that, is like you can just cheat and ask people, like how, like how do you do this? Like what's it look like when you cast magic? Or and I find that's a good way to like get those character moments of your players feeling cool and uh, keeping the narration flowing in a cohesive scene and cody's second question is what was the inspiration for your player characters and some of the great npcs that were featured in uh the campaign uh i think jacksonmar was largely not born out of any specific character but born out of like me being a star wars nerd who argues about like sort of the intent of the jedi order and it's sort of like guiding principles and how well they stick to it and like thinking about, I would like to make a very good Jedi for this series, but the Jedi Order in the movies has some very notable screw-ups. So how would this character have have dealt with those kinds of things? And that's sort of the person I tried to make. Uh, I talked at the beginning about Tan being kind of a mix of Poe Dameron and Han Solo, but she is unabashedly Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a huge BSG nerd. Um, that's, That's definitely a huge influence for me. Uh, when we decided we wouldn't all be Jedi, I just, yeah, I knew I'd have to be a droid. Like, I really wanted to be a droid. Uh, but I didn't want to be, like, the R2-D2 computer one, because I feel like that's really played out in all the movies. So I figured Medical Droid would be a, a cool, sort of less popular route to go. Uh, and then from there, I just built their name on a bad joke, and it kind of came together. I kind of cheated with Elkiri, because... Um Padawans are still like not fully formed. So uh, I was like, I'm playing a Jedi who's a Padawan who can like, who relies on the force. That's it. She's still learning. So I get to learn who she is. Um, And she, she wasn't really fully formed. I had episode one had no idea how she was going to do anything, which played out great because she was also really not sure how she was going to do anything (laughs) either. Uh, As, as for NPCs, um, I I draw from all sorts of inspirations, movies, books, talking with friends, characters even that I've wanted to play, but also uh, the whole concept of essential NPCs is taking NPCs from previous campaigns and reforming them into current campaigns. And that's something I've always done in every game I've ever played, like way before the podcast. Um, I, I do that all the time. I just like completely rip off things all the time, especially when it comes to NPCs, because it, it informs the players 
of things about that character that you can't really give them, uh, and you and it saves you the time of having to prepare. Our next question comes from Kevin. What made you guys choose the Fantasy Flight version of Star Wars as opposed to the other publishers like Wizards of the Coast or West End Games? There were a couple things that went into that decision, and it really just boiled down to like two major things. One major point was that uh, the Fantasy Flight game is the one that is most readily available, most likely for people to be able to go and purchase. It's the community that is currently the most active and the most likely to grow. And so for the podcast specifically, like we want people to like buy a game in a store and go, man, I want to see how this works in, in, in action. And then they look us up and see, oh, okay, cool. There's a cool actual play of this system. Um, there's not a whole lot of people going into stores and buying the West End games or the Wizards of the Coast games because they're not very readily available. Um, and then the other aspect that made us choose it was the fact that it is a very unique system. There's not really anything else like it out there, which makes it so that like we really want to try it out because it's not like something we've seen before. And then also makes it more likely for people to like want to check it out and, and see how it plays. Um, the D20 version of Star Wars is based very heavily on the foundation of like Pathfinder and 3.5. And then the D6 version of Star Wars is somewhat unique, but, uh, but a little dated and then also still borrows from a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, when we saw Fantasy Flight had their own special set of dice and it was this unique, like you're not counting numbers, you're instead like weighing success versus failure and threat versus advantage. Like that really drew us to it. It made us want to try it out and see how it played. And that's what really put us down that path. And that leads uh, really well into our next set of questions from Fred. Uh, Tommy actually just answered his first question, which is, how would you rate or compare Star Wars Fantasy Flight Edition to Star Wars RPG Saga and Star Wars D6 from West End Games? Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, so uh, his next question is, how would you describe the learning curve of the system regarding someone who's only played D&D and D20 games and someone who has never played tabletop RPGs? Um, I feel like I keep saying the same thing, but like it sounds really difficult. It's really not. I know the first time I was like purple dice and green dice and which one's the ability die and what the heck is a challenge die and <laughs> um but really like you play one session you play for two hours and you're like oh gotcha all right i know what these symbols are now i know which ones cancel out which ones and you just immediately start pairing usually what everyone does you roll your dice and then you pair off the ones that match with each other that count out until you have what's whatever's left over and you're like that's a failure. Yep. <laughs> if possible, I'd probably recommend, I guess this is true of a lot of systems, but I'd probably recommend starting with pre-gen characters for the first playthrough or two. Because if you're building a character from scratch and you've never used the dice before, you might do some kind of suboptimal things. I think if you've only played D&D &D or other tabletop RPGs, like the character building is more complex than sort of the entry level for those. If this is your first tabletop RPG, it's really easy to make a character that isn't actually capable of doing anything you want them to do. And Fred's next question is, how did you guys deal with the different dice at first? Was it difficult or easy enough to read and interpret the results? Uh, I think we've gone over this uh, quite a bit. Just got a pretty great explanation from Bree and Nick. So I think that we'll uh, move on to the next question. Hopefully that was a good enough answer. On many occasions, uh, the GM tossed a dark side point to increase the difficulty of some role in a scene that was already tense and dangerous. Can you explain what was 
was the criteria for, for you to do so, Tommy? What was that criteria? <laughs> um, obviously, I, I like raising the stakes whenever I can. Um, and so w- even when a scene was tense and dangerous, uh, when I felt like I... When I felt like I wasn't being unfair, uh, I liked to kind of highlight that it was extra tense and dangerous by flipping a dark side point to make it even harder, being like, yeah, this is like serious, guys. Um, but then on top of that, there is like an economy going on between the dark side and light side destiny points. And due to the podcast medium, you can't really see as that goes back and forth. But a lot of the time when I threw dark side at them to make their test harder, it was because I could think of an interesting thing to do if they rolled a despair. And sometimes maybe it wasn't super high stakes. Uh, and I would do that mostly so that they would have more light side points available to them. Because as the Jedi are using their powers and having to flip dark side and as everyone's trying to upgrade their tests so they have a chance of like overcoming whatever obstacle I put in front of them, they're getting rid of all their light side points and filling it with dark side for me. And if I don't use that, they run out of resources really fast and that doesn't feel good as a player. So whenever I could, I tried to replenish the light side for them uh, by spending my dark side so that hopefully they would be able to like in a pinch come out on top. Our next set of questions comes from Mike. He says, I love this system and I've really been enjoying your campaign. My own group's pilot made chases and combat checks largely trivial by starting at agility five. So I'm curious, how did uh, how did the players spend their starting XP? Min max for life. (laughs) (laughs) I almost went to five intellects, but. We talked about it and decided that was kind of unnecessary for the start. (laughs) So I only took four intellect and like a second point in something else. I think your player did kind of the right thing uh, because uh, the the cost of adding to to your um, attributes after character creation is so high. Uh, skills are so much easier to, to bump up. So I had high attributes and like no skills. Uh, and, uh, and that, that's how I, how I did it. If your player who's a pilot, uh, made it so that combat checks and chase scenes felt trivial. Uh, my recommendation to you would be make it whoever, or make it so whoever they're working against has equal to or higher than skills. And then also add an adversary rating to whatever they're up against. Uh, because even just an adversary rating of one or two drastically changes how much trouble the players have with who, uh, with whatever they're up against. Those challenge dice are crazy. And if you don't have to spend dark side points to make them go up against challenge dice for combat, oh my God, it's great. Despairs for days. <laughs> or just put a bomb on their ship. I'll, I'll never forgive Nakata for that. Our next cadre of questions comes from Alan. Uh, hold on to your butts. There's a couple. So the first one is for, uh, for Dan. Uh, Jaxmar used ebb a lot more than flow during combat. Would he have been able to use this skill for other nonstop combat checks? Um, so to sort of answer your sort of question first about using ebb a lot, uh, it was the defensive one. It let me put failures on our enemies' checks, which was a lot more important than making my own combat checks better because I was super easy to kill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as for uh, the second half, me and Tommy, when I picked this this force power specifically, 
spent a lot of time trying to figure out how does this power work because it's really poorly written in the book. Um, and I think ultimately Tommy found a podcast where a developer of the game outlines how the power is supposed to work. And like that was what we used as our guiding principle of like, okay, this is the intent. So it can do this. It can't do this. You can use it for this, but not that. And what we came to is the power is not supposed to work outside of structured time. So had we fallen into structured time and I wasn't in a fight, I could still have used it for those checks. But I don't think we ever ended up in structured time when it wasn't combat. And I made a character designed to get into a fight. So there wasn't a lot of time where I was not fighting when we were. <laughs> and uh, Alan's next question is for Bree. It seems like Tan dealt with some of the darkest personal aspects in the storyline. Her trauma of being a former slave, her substance abuse, and her choice to assassinate the Justicar seemed like very heavy subjects to deal with. While it was mentioned in Words with the GM, did you personally have to prepare for these subjects? And was it difficult to approach these subjects? Yeah, um, so I am a big fan of making sure you talk about this kind of stuff with your players beforehand. And, you know, like, we all know each other very well. We're, we're very comfortable playing with each other. But if you have new players or if you're starting a new campaign, it's always really good to talk about where you might go with the campaign and make sure that people have a way to let you know if they feel uncomfortable about something. Um, I really like depressing things. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of, you know, Better Call Saul and Bojack Horseman and shows that just kind of rip out your heart and stomp it on the floor. Um, so that's kind of reflected definitely in the character that I played. Uh, and I, I had always intended um, for her to have some of that burden, uh, you know, because the Star Wars universe is big and beautiful and awe-inspiring, but it is war and it is tough and there is, there is slavery, there is heavy racism. And to play this huge system without addressing any of those things, I think would have been doing a disservice to the stories that we could tell. Alan's next question is for Nick. The switch from Kirill in Series 7 to Oko in Series 8 is dramatically different. Mm -hmm. Do you have a character archetype that you usually play? And if it's different from the ones you've played so far, do you intend to play it in your newly announced appearance in Series 9? <laughs> so I try to play at least like different classes of characters and things every time. My type does usually go back to just somebody who might cause problems but also like set up long-term solutions to them before they've happened because <laughs> i really like just weird awkward payoffs that nobody saw coming and yeah so yeah for series nine i think you ask yeah the plan at the moment is to go back for like a, a second round at like a tinkerer type just again coming up with really weird fixes to things because <laughs> uh, i like I like breaking worlds, <laughs> but in a fun way. And Alan's next question is for me and Dan. Did Elkiri becoming a Jedi Knight stem from a game mechanic or was it a narrative choice? Uh, if it was a mechanic, did it require Dan's buy-in? And if it was narrative, did it require Tommy's buy-in to make it work? So spoilers, I didn't know it was coming. So uh, I guess Dan really has to take this question. Uh, I'm just going to butt in here for a second. I also didn't know it was coming. <laughs> take it away, Dan. Yeah. So up until that point, 
I had realized that I had been playing Jaxamar as relying on Elkiri to be self-sufficient and handle tasks on her own and not need him there to solve the, the situation she was in. And so we finished up Tarvo, and I realized, like, oh, we left Alkiri alone to solve basically that whole problem for, like, two and a half days. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to keep calling her a Padawan. <laughs> um, so I just kind of made the call. It felt like the right time. Uh, I think I had at the beginning of the series in my head, like, at some point, Jaxamar is going to tell Alkiri, like, you're a Jedi Knight now. Um, and that just happened to be the time that felt right. There was no mechanic involved in that. And this is for the entire cast. What is your favorite Star Wars movie, character, race, or planet setting? Your favorite Star Wars noun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can go first, but I can't do just one. Um, I loved, uh, for a lot of reasons, um, I really loved uh, The Last Jedi. Um, but uh, it really all comes down to, all of Star Wars, for me, comes down to Ahsoka Tano. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she is... Uh, she is my favorite, and I love her so much, and I could literally talk for her for a very long time, so I'll just keep it at Ahsoka, the end. So, yeah, I think I mentioned this earlier, but yeah, my favorite Star Wars movie is probably Rogue One. I love Jyn Erso. I think she's a complex, interesting, strong character, and I just really enjoyed the entire story that was told with her. Favorite movie is probably either Empire or Force Awakens, Favorite race? I don't know favorite, but rereading the books, I decided like if I played the Star Wars RPG again, I'd really want to be a Claudite, like the shapeshifters. I think that's got some really cool options. And then character, just sort of re-watching the movies in the Clone Wars, mostly for this, and also internet memes, like Chancellor Palpatine, he's got it going on. <laughs> Guy's like the only person in the Star Wars universe that really has shit figured out. And I respect that. If you need Chancellor Palpatine memes, please, please email Nick. He Do has it. so many of them. Do it. <laughs> I'll be a big Star Wars nerd and say um, my favorite Star Wars thing is probably no longer canon. Um, but at the end of the second Knights of the Old Republic game, you go to... Uh, Malachor, which they brought back for um, Rebels, but it's totally different than it was in the game. Uh, and there's a fight uh, with one of the last bosses in which you cannot beat him by beating him with a lightsaber. You have to like convince him that his ideology is incorrect. And I think it's like the most awesome thing of like, you've spent your whole time being this incredible lightsaber duelist and you just have to talk to this dude and tell him, no, you're wrong for choosing the dark side. If if I had to choose like a favorite uh, Star Wars story, um, I think honestly the animated Clone Wars series uh, really helped breathe life into Star Wars at a time that like I was starting to get a little like, you know, indifferent about it. The thing about the animated series and and the the follow-up the rebels animated series that really got me like just super hyped about Star Wars again was the way that they redeemed the story arc of Darth Maul <laughs> um, because like when when Star Wars Episode One Phantom Menace came out I was 
all on board. I was, you know, a kid and I loved the fact that I got to see Star Wars in the theater because I didn't get to see any of the other ones in the theater. It was the first time and I loved that movie like blindly for a long time and I thought Darth Maul was like the coolest character and and then like as I like got a little older and started to like understand how storytelling works I started to get really mad about Darth Maul <laughs> and then uh, the and then you have the Clone Wars animated series where they like bring them back and make them interesting again and then carry that into Rebels like or it's kind of like the magic of Star Wars embodied in his character because he ended up being kind of a throwaway character when he was first written right just a cool a cool looking person who got killed and then was just like never mentioned again and didn't matter and people loved him so much that like other people who were passionate about that character and wanted more from him found ways to expand his l- legend and carry his narrative into new and interesting ways. And that's that's for me what makes Star Wars so great is that people love it so much that they when they like get involved, they can tell amazing stories about it because everyone's minds are just racing with what they think is like a great Star Wars story. The next question uh, Alan asked was, how much experience did you have with the system prior to playing this series? Um, And we've actually touched on that already. So hopefully what we said before was uh, the right answer. Uh, (laughs) And then this one is for Tommy and the rest of the cast. Who was your favorite NPC in the series? Sucra. I, I love that everyone got so invested in Sucra. And it was such a good payoff when I brought him back later and you guys just got to see him be happy and healthy, like just watching everyone's face light up and like them being like, I did a good thing. I was like, all right, I'm very, very happy that I made Sucra and didn't just like delete that character when I was prepping. (laughs) I was very convinced he was going to die. I was just so (laughs) ready for him to die. And I'm really glad he didn't. I don't remember his real name because I'm awful, but Brother Theodore, the Wizard of Oz guy. <laughs> that, was, that was a good time. Uh, yeah, I'll say Brother Theodore as well. Uh, he was my favorite for a lot of reasons. <laughs> uh, and mine was my best friend, Pirate. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, Monechi Pern. Monechi Pern, best friend forever. Uh, hey, someone earlier asked, "What were you upset that you didn't explore further?" I should have written in more Monechi Pern. Oh my god, he was so much fun. I should have like found a way to bring him back. Uh, and then he goes on to ask, uh, aside from the essential NPCs, who is your favorite NPC from all series combined so far? Yeah, the the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Hannah from from Seventh Series, the mute or deaf. I don't remember swordsmith. Like, that was just a really cool, unexpected moment. Definitely Magnitude from the Red Hot Nukes from Series 2 and 5. Um, just an amazing character all around. Uh, sort of along those lines, I will go Tommen of the Red Hot Nukes, Keeper <laughs> of the Telescope. <laughs> Your scopey thing. <laughs> I think he shows up one time in Series 2 and one time in Series 5, and he's great both times. He made it! <laughs> Wait, or maybe Mabel? Mabel's amazing. Oh, Mabel from Series 3. That's yeah, a good one, yeah. Really uh, okay, so then the next question is, for the cast, it seemed like 
the game had a punishing amount of role failures early in the campaign, while it got markedly better toward the midpoint of the series and very good at the end. Is this due to skills or were you just extremely unlucky at the beginning? Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that the dice were unfair to me the entire time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think uh, that touches a bit on on what Addie was talking about earlier about how it's a better long term investment when creating your character to put a lot of your XP in your attributes because the only way to raise them is to go very deep into talent trees, whereas you can just spend XP as you get it on skills. Uh, and so as a result, it made everyone much less consistent at the beginning because a lot of their skills were lower. Um, and then as they got higher and kind of grabbed all the talent abilities that they wanted from their trees, they just started pumping the rest of their, like, their XP into skill points. And then all of a sudden they were rolling a bunch of yellow dice and rolling triumphs for, for days. So Alan's next question is for me and Tommy. If he recalls correctly, uh, he we seem to mention bonus episodes with adventures before the fall of the Republic. Uh, his memory is hazy, so he can't remember what we did with them if they were made Patreon exclusive or simply dropped. What happened? Yeah, uh, that was that was purely just life got in the way, and uh, I was I was really busy with a lot of different things. We were moving, and ultimately, I, I had to make a cut. And I decided, you know, I'm going to keep re releasing episodes every week, but I just don't think we're going to get the bonus episodes through. They're really cool. It was uh, a little like three episode arc of this team plus Dudo uh, solving a mystery on Lakori before they uh, went up to the space battle and subsequently dealt with Order 66. I think the thing that enabled me to kind of drop them was that the first episode was kind of the fourth bonus episode put into the beginning of the campaign because it was that important for the audience to see this team before order 66 happened. And so eventually I just was like, you know, Dudo's back. Everyone gets it. I, I, I don't have the bandwidth to, to edit the, uh, the bonus episodes and put them out there. So sorry, we try not to make promises that we don't keep. Uh, but in this case, uh, you know, we, we let you down a little bit. I'm sorry. And Alan has another question for the cast. Uh, as a fairly new listener to the podcast, I noticed that you seem to record episodes many weeks in advance during the first couple of series, and now it seems like you're recording a lot closer to release. Is that really the case, or are you still recording batches of episodes and only recording the finale a few days before the release of post-game chatter? Yeah, we try we try not to make it super obvious. We don't want people to get like distracted by like the technical aspects of recording and releasing the podcast. We want it to feel fresh and new. Um Words with the GM is recorded every week right before we put out the episode, uh, but we actually have started recording the episodes proper long before they come out. It's just helped us with our personal schedules and, and makes it a lot easier when we get a cast together instead of being like, hey, let's record multiple times over many months. Let's instead going, hey, let's record two weekends in January and get the whole series out of the way right away. Uh, that, that tends to work a little bit better for everyone. Uh, so that's kind of the peek behind the curtain, as as it were. Alan's next question is also for the cast. Would you be willing to play uh, setting agnostic systems like various anime-inspired ones, namely OVA, the animated role-playing game, or Big Eyes Small Mouth, which you allow you to pick your setting archetype? 
Um, so actually we, uh, generally avoid doing setting agnostic systems. Uh, this isn't because we don't think that they're good or can't be, uh, made into an awesome campaign. Um, the closest we got is we, uh, adapted a small amount of uncharted worlds into a setting that I had created for a book of mine. And the reason that we do that is because we want people to be able to tune into the podcast and learn how whatever system we're playing is played. If we were to create an entire world, um, we, we would feel like we'd be leaving some of our listeners who listen to us specifically for that reason uh, behind in the dust. And we haven't really found a system yet that we've been so enamored with that we had to do that right away. Uh, We have considered fate as our first and probably only setting agnostic system, uh, but we haven't yet figured out uh, if and when that will appear on the podcast. So no strong rule against it. We just, uh, we want to bring you all the systems that are out there first. Uh, and, uh, the next question is for series GMs. Would you be willing to cover dead systems like sm- big eyes, small mouth or earth <laughs> <laughs> We, we chuckle at earth because, uh, obviously as big Shadowrun fans, we're enamored with the, with the idea of earth but we've never, we've never even sat down and played it in a home game. <laughs> I think I think one of the one of the things that stops us from really doing that is because there's so many systems out there that are available and and still vibrant in their communities. And as a podcast, we we often want to aim for those kind of systems because we want to tap into that community, start a conversation with those people and maybe show other people who are interested in playing that game that is still currently actively being released or how it can be done. One exception to that is definitely series four, Tefra, which uh, the game died halfway through the series, <laughs> which we did not anticipate. We knew it was a very small, obscure uh, RPG, but we didn't realize it was uh, in its final days when we started it. And Alan's final question is for Tommy and Ryan Covert, uh, who isn't here. <laughs> um, he's not sure if we've ever tried this while producing the podcast, but a trick he learned is uh, what we like to call local remote. It's where the person who can't be at the table actually uh, records themselves uh, locally on their computer and then sends in the file uh, so it can be uh, merged with all of the other audio files uh, on a different track. And he was wondering if we would ever consider doing that because he doesn't think he can go back to listening Ryan Cover through Skype after series six and hearing his true dulcet tones. <laughs> um, actually, uh, it's it's interesting you bring that up because that's our plan moving into series nine. Uh, we're going to talk about it again at the beginning of series nine, but basically uh, three of the cast members, uh, Dan, Roman, and Covert are all remote now. Uh, none of them live in the same city as us. So uh, we are pursuing that and uh, it's going... It, and it is currently how we plan to bring Series 9 to you. So tune into the first episode of Series 9. We're going to talk about it some more there. Also, we'll see if it works. Uh, our next set of questions comes from Alex. Alex says, I have not played many RPGs yet, but when I do, I have trouble coming up with the names sometimes. How do you guys come up with your names? How do you do it when you're a GM and need one fast during the game? In a home game. I try and pick a name that will make either Addy or Tommy 
groan and call it dumb. Uh, in the podcast, I try very hard to not do that and pick something like from the setting that makes sense for whoever I made. Like Star Wars has a ton of like name generators and all of us were sitting around looking at Star Wars name generators and we we're trying to come up with names for characters and there were some incredible ones um but that's where i got jackson marcerell from uh it didn't work so much for star wars but i've totally looked at lists of baby names before especially the ones that have like like the meanings or like the old well what latin saint is this you know I'm, i don't get too jk rowling with it but if i can make some like obscure connection that no one will get but will just make me happy into a name i'll do that as for doing it on the fly as a GM, I usually find an online name generator that I really like for the setting, and I have it open and ready the entire time I'm running. So like, as soon as they're like, oh, we, we go talk to this person, I go, ah, yes. And they're like, what's your name, friend? I just click refresh a couple times and go, ah, yeah, I'm, you know, Dudo Nuem. <laughs> and, uh, and then we just run with it from there. <laughs> Alex's next question has to do with names as well. Uh, how do you all remember so many names and places from the story every week? I'm sure you take notes, but how descriptive are they? If I had a galaxy like Star Wars, I think I'd be too busy writing everything down to play my character. Take notes. As someone who sometimes GMs, please, for the love of God, take notes. Your GM will thank you. Always make sure someone is taking notes. Your GM will thank you. Yeah, I, I'm I'm notoriously not a person who takes notes, but I always make sure someone is before I I just check out, and then I make that person my touchstone for like, hey, what's up, my guy's person? What's that guy's name? Uh, is that a person, a friend, or an enemy? <laughs> there was like a couple of fun moments early in the series where like Tommy would say something, and I would think, ah, I should probably write that down. And I would go to grab my pencil, and then I would look around, and everyone else was already writing it down. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. I think I don't need to take notes this season. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, I take notes depending on what I'm playing. Uh, if I'm playing like a sneaky samurai guy, I'm not going to take notes because that person doesn't care about all of the details. Uh, whereas like playing somebody like Alkiri, who's a face who needs to know everybody's name and everything that's going on, there are a lot of notes. So uh, take the notes that your character would want to take. Is, is my real actual advice. Alex's next question was, did you have models for the space battles? Is it hard to picture them in three dimensions? Just due to the limitations of the podcast, what with the, record, the recording equipment taking up most of the table, uh, there's no maps or anything like that. But you better believe during uh, all of the play tests, I broke out all my Star Wars toys and we were we were having all sorts of fun maps. I play Star Wars X-Wing, also from Fantasy Flight Games, and uh, I, we had space battles. And I don't think anyone had too much trouble picturing it in three dimension because ultimately it's it's all relative and who cares? You get to look at cool toys all the time. <laughs> I cheated. I have what's called a Tommy Cotton, who's very good at describing <laughs> things when I'm like, I want to shoot the thing. And he's like, you do this cool flip and you you slam on the brakes and then you do this thing and it's awesome. <laughs> um, so that's how I got around that. Alex's last question is, Tan's addiction was really well done. I was very surprised when she assassinated Magistrate Jaco. <laughs> was any of that planned? Is it okay, in your opinion, for one or two players to plan something that the group learns about later? So I did check in with the group before it happened because they obviously they knew they heard my conversation as players when I was talking to Oko. 
about it. And I made sure that it was cool and that no one felt like I was going off the rails. Um, ultimately, Tommy gave me the choice between, you know, pursuing Shamash or killing Jaco. And so at that point, Tan was just too focused on herself and what she had been through to to make the better choice. So, yeah, it it was always a hefty probability that it would happen, but it wasn't planned. And I think the the key to that was just making sure the rest of the group was was okay with it and felt like we were headed in the right direction. As far as uh whether whether or not it's okay for some of the characters to have a plan that they don't inform the other characters of, I think that depends on your table and the characters that are in the game. Uh I it can be good, it can be bad. It's always important for the players at the table to be okay with it as a whole. Otherwise, you start to build animosity, like, oh, they get to have a cool little side thing and I'm not involved. Like, that that can, like, irk some people. I think open lines of communication with your players, always a good choice. Um, and then there's actually kind of a, a difference of opinion in whether or not, like, hidden information is something you should use at your table or not. I personally, at my table prefer to force my players to try and separate character and player knowledge. And I, and I let everyone watch every scene. Uh, I don't like pull people aside and like have them like write like a note or whisper to me what they do that no one else notices. And I do that because I like watching the whole movie. So I want to let my players watch the whole movie, but there is something to be said about actually immersing your players so much in the story that like they, not even the players know everything that every character in the game knows. Right. I would say don't, throw out how fun it is to have dramatic irony. You know, it sounds like onerous to have to separate character knowledge and player knowledge, but dramatic irony is super satisfying both in books and TV, and it's really satisfying in role-playing games as well. Absolutely. And if you can get the GM to sell you Quirkemco Quick Flash Burning Gel without them knowing what it's for, it's just so much better <laughs> later on. <laughs> uh, our next set of questions comes from Kayton. Uh, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh... When playing in a world with such a richly established canon, did you find it hard not to play into well-known roles? I was playing a Jedi, so I, I kind of got a pass on that, luckily. Uh, what about everybody else? Uh, I'll second that. <laughs> yeah, I just combined the obliviousness of C-3PO with the actual competence of R2-D2. It worked all right. All art is stolen. Don't, don't feel bad about stealing your art. You know, take take roles that you love and mash them together and create something new. Yeah, and so I'd make sure actually, you name it something else. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually say that Dan played less to type than anybody else because his Jedi couldn't do any of the Force stuff that was, you know, traditional Force stuff. That's true. Yeah, his Force was all very subtle. The next question is: What aspects of the system did you dislike or like the most? Yeah, I think I think that one's been talked about. Uh, backwards and forwards at this point. Uh, hopefully you got the answer you were looking for there. We all love the system for a lot of ways and there's not a whole lot about it we dislike. Which actually is the answer to the next question as well. Would you consider revisiting this story? Uh, yes, we've answered that a bunch. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, um, so we all wake up from the carbonite <laughs> and the exhibitor is somehow intact. Yes. Oh, I 
I, I do actually want to my head cannon uh, for the acceptor because earlier I mentioned I, I didn't I didn't plan to save it, but it's okay because I I figured it out now. Uh, when Miri Elson and Rissa Anaro uh, were making their escape, you know the the planet started crumbling in on itself. That Tie Fighter doesn't have a hyperdrive, and uh, so I think they got aboard the acceptor and maybe waited for you guys a little bit. But at a certain point, we're like, yeah, they're dead, right? They're definitely dead, and left before like the whole mountain just like got engulfed in lava. And so if you guys ever wake up from carbonite, maybe you'll find the exhibitor again. Maybe Riss is all old and is like, I was waiting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Or you see it in a junk heap on Jakku. Who knows? The next question is, uh, do you feel there's a good class balance between Jedi and non-Jedi classes? Which I think I would pose to Nick and Bree, especially having played the non-Jedi. I got to be so much better at skills. Like it was, it was not close. Yeah, I don't know if night level like sort of taints that, but I mean, I thought it was a pretty fair trade off of being just sort of better on roles, but not getting to do the more flexible, mystical, magical stuff. Yeah, I think that again, we we did play to our classes, which is totally fine. But you know. No one else could have flown the exhibitor like Tan could have. Whatever character you create within the system, there's, of course, ways to make it super even. Um, And you don't have to min-max. You don't have to be just one class. You can definitely take different talent trees. Um, But, yeah, no, I think that they do a very good job of making it very even. I could easily see how if you had a table full of people who were not interested in making sure everyone got their time to shine, you could make a Jedi who, given enough time, could sort of handle literally any problem anyone could come across. Um, But I think that's kind of, that's not inherent to the system. It's a problem that comes with, like, mages in Shadowrun and wizards in D&D. It's that, like, given enough time, they're so powerful that they can solve anything. And it comes down less to game balance and more of like just not being a dick and making sure the person who plays a fighter gets to do cool stuff too. (laughs) There are just also so many skills that putting points in all of them is basically impossible. So I think that does really play to the fact that like all the Star Wars movies are really ensemble pieces too. Like you have specializations and that really does come through in the RPG. And the last question in this batch is any chance of a horror game in the future? Uh, I'd love to listen to you fine folks play some Call of Cthulhu. Winky face. <laughs> uh, we've talked about playing Cthulhu amongst ourselves. We've played a couple play tests of it. There's not one of us who feels like we have the strongest grasp of the mythos. Um, and so as a result, C- Call of Cthulhu just keeps being a thing that we say, Maybe, maybe we'll do it next time. Maybe, maybe the time after that. You know, we're playing to our strengths still. <laughs> if you like horror, I really hope you're playing Dread. It doesn't translate over podcast because you don't get that anticipation, but it's such a great system. Uh, honestly, uh, if we could do a podcast of Dread, we probably would have by now because it is a ton of fun. But it's really hard to show people vocally that you're playing Jenga. <laughs> uh, our next question comes from Chris. Shamash Bell was Matteo's father in Series 7. 
His character is a competent operative in both series. I was surprised that this ENPC came out as a cowardly person in series eight. Was this an intentional character choice? Uh, yes. Um, for a couple reasons. One thing we don't get to see a whole bunch of Shamash in series seven. We just see him a little bit, but I kept getting the impression with just the way he spoke and his mannerisms that Shamash carried a lot of guilt with him. And, and I felt like maybe like while he's super competent and obviously like a skilled operative, I think he's made decisions that he regrets. When I tried to translate that into Shamash for series eight, I started to think like maybe the kind of decisions he regrets are the decisions he makes where he puts other people in the line of fire or puts the needs of the mission above the lives of his comrades. And I kind of took that idea and went with it a little deeper. And that's where I decided like, yeah, you know, like that, that's, that's Shamash, right? I felt like it was true to character. And then what happened is Tan hated him so much. She was so livid with Shamash and like, you know, she, she, her, her obligation was betrayal. She's hypersensitive to betrayal. And, uh, so when it, when I thought about that a little bit more, I was like, okay, I need to bring him back and I need to give Tan that confrontation. I need to give Tan that resolution. I need to let her either best Shamash or, or argue with him or something like have those two ideologies clash where Tan's like, no loyalty above all else. And Shamash is no, the needs of the mission weigh out everything else. And so when I brought him back, uh, I also wanted to give breathe a chance of like catharsis there. And the way I justified it mostly was that for the months and months that we didn't see Shamash, he was subject to the worst kinds of torture, both mentally and physically at the hands of the empire and an inquisitor. So at that point, I think he was a pretty broken man, uh, and was just like, everything just came crumbling down. And so when they had him tied to a chair in the exhibitor, he was done fighting. He was just like, I'm too shattered of a person at this moment. And one thing to always remember is, uh, whenever we bring an EMPC back, they're not exactly the same person that they were in the previous series. Sometimes they get molded into whatever this new campaign or world needs them to be. The next few questions come from all right, Grift, um, <laughs> to everyone. What was, what is your biggest regret of the season? And what, if anything, would you change about the story or your characters? I have a very specific regret that I didn't realize until I was listening to the episodes, like as they were coming out, that in the confrontation with Tan, where I tell her to get out of my medical bay, I didn't say get the dosh out of my medical bay. <laughs> I hated myself so much listening to that part of that episode because it would have been so perfect. So that's my biggest regret. Do you, do you want to say it now? Get the dosh out of my medical bay. <laughs> all right. Uh, I have a couple small regrets. One is that not all of the Jedi books were out when we started this campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the other is like really less of a regret and more of just like an acceptance of the constraint of what we do on the podcast was I wish there had been more time for me and Addie to have scenes of Jack Samar and Elkiri like doing Jedi training on the exhibitor, which like there just wasn't the time in an episode for us to have a conversation about philosophy for 15 minutes in the middle of, you know, the tense stuff we were dealing with. Um, 
had it been a home game, I totally would have taken those 15 minutes. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with Dan there. Um, there were times where I was worried about, you know, Tan kind of resolving to turn herself around if that was happening too quickly. But then again, it's like, oh, we've got three episodes left. Like she's got to she's got to hit that point at some point. And so I think that it's OK. It's OK that you don't, you know, pull out every single moment of every piece um, books and movies, all media is curated. It's not real life. You don't see every moment of it. And, and that's OK. Uh, all right. Grift's next question is, how does the FFG Star Wars game compare to other narrative heavy systems you've played? I think when we played uh, like Uncharted Worlds, I was pretty vocal about like wanting more structure out of that game. I enjoyed the campaign and the characters and it was a lot of fun, but I constantly found myself wishing there were more rules around what we were doing. Um, and I think this system nails that perfectly. Like I get to invest a lot of time in building a character that has like these powers with specific um, applications. And like I get to use the rules that I've spent money on. Uh, and then I get to roll these dice that like every time I roll them, they say something cool happens, whether or not I succeed or fail. And I think that's awesome. I think I'd compare the system most closely to Fate, um, which kind of has a similar structure in that things aren't just bad or worse, good or better. Things are complex. So you do fail with an advantage or succeed with a threat. And, you know, Fate has a mechanic in which you can succeed at a cost, which is very similar. And so I really like that because I think it's a lot more nuanced. It gives you a lot of interesting paths for the story to take and you're not just kind of hitting your head against a wall when you fail or just kind of bored that you succeeded everything uh and all right griff's last question is are are y'all burned out on star wars or would you play more of it because this was a very good set uh this was a very good series just saying yeah, I think we're all pretty vocal about how much we enjoy this system. And obviously, the one regret everyone has is that there wasn't more of this system. <laughs> Next up, we have a couple questions from Jim. He asks, for everyone, how would you describe your level of Star Wars fandom prior to this series? I'll start. I watched the, uh, the original trilogy growing up watched the prequels in theaters, and uh, yeah, I, I was a pretty self-proclaimed Star Wars fan, had Star Wars toys growing up. Um, I never dove so deep as to, like, read all the legends and get, like, super, super into, like, uh, the expansive lore. I really was just, like, a, a visual media uh, consumer for uh, most of my Star Wars time. Um, but, uh, yeah, pretty familiar going into, uh, into the series. I don't claim to be top tier, but pretty high, like all the movies, a good amount of like the old card games uh, and video games. I also hadn't really read any of the uh, expanded universe books so much, but did a lot of Wikipedia dives into Star Wars stuff. I was a noob. Um I the first Star Wars movie I ever saw in my life was episode one. So you can imagine why that delayed my entry into the <laughs> Star Wars universe for a decade or so. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I've seen all the movies. I haven't watched all of the Clone Wars or, you know, haven't played Knights of the Old Republic or anything like that. I learned a ton, a ton 
from everyone at the table, which was really fun. And I think that this series is probably what has really made me come to enjoy and appreciate the Star Wars universe. Uh, my first experience with Star Wars, other than the nerds who watched it, um, <laughs> was I went to see episode two in the theaters. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really had no idea what was going on pretty much the whole time. Uh, and so I took a very long break until Lego Star Wars came out for a week. <laughs> Uh, and then I played through all of Lego Star Wars and that was pretty much it for a while. Um, and then eventually I like saw all of the movies, but didn't really, I wasn't really like a huge fan of them. Uh, and then, uh, Tommy showed me all of the Star Wars, all of the, like all the YouTube of Star Wars arguments <laughs> about Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, he, we played hours of the old Republic Star Wars. And I introduced you to Ahsoka Tano. And then he introduced me to Ahsoka and it was all great after that. <laughs> and then I started reading the books about Ahsoka. So really we can see how that goes. Uh, I had played a lot of Star Wars video games and I had read one of the early books in the new, new Jedi order book series. And then one of the last ones where they like finally beat the organic terraforming aliens who invade the galaxy. And then everything I knew became non-canon and I didn't really jump back into it, but like, I still watch all the movies and I love it. Uh, and Jim's next question is for anyone who wants to answer, if someone were jumping into the system and wanted to start with only one of the three core books, which one would you recommend? For a first dive into the system, I'd say Edge of Empire. Just sort of grittier, like not as straight-laced as Age of Rebellion. So that's a little more fun, at least for me to play. And it doesn't have all the heavy, heavier sort of rules that the Force and Destiny does. I have an answer uh, from my head and an answer from my heart. <laughs> and the answer from my head is um, pick up Age of Rebellion or Edge of the Empire because the duty and obligation systems are a really great way to direct your party to where you want them to go of like, this is your duty. You have a mission. You're in the rebellion. Go do the mission. Or this is your obligation. You owe a, a lot of money. Do what he says or he kills you. <laughs> um, and I think those, those books are generally simpler. My heart says pick up Force and Destiny. You could be a Jedi. <laughs> It really boils down to, do you want to be good guys or bad guys? If it's good guys, pick up Age of Rebellion first. If it's bad guys, pick up Edge of the Empire first. And uh, the other thing is that Force and Destiny pretty much requires every character to be at least Force-sensitive. Uh, and I think that that's a really important thing for, like, if you're only going to pick up one book, pick one that does everything rather than only does, like, sort of one section. Uh, and that's why Edge or Age are, is going to be uh, the book for you. And he, that brings us to our last set of questions. These questions are from Gordon. Apart from your own character, which PC or NPC would you have liked to play and why? I mean, yeah, I want to, I want to do magic, so I want to be Elkiri. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cheated. I kind of got to play Dudo. So <laughs> uh, I, got, I got to play the character I wanted to play just a little bit. This, I think, is sort of indicative of the dichotomy of the light side and the dark side. 
I'd like to play the Inquisitor for his like force rating five. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have liked to play Justicar Moshana. I she had a lot of really interesting, complicated things going on, and that would have been a lot of fun. I want to be Pep Dantor when I grow up. <laughs> uh, I think his life must be so interesting. So the second question from Gordon is, Tommy, how did you find planning a campaign in such a well-known canon such as Star Wars? What were the challenges in making that recognizable, but still your own? I do talk a bit about this uh, in one of the earlier words with the GM. I tried to steer the campaign away from like the really heavily... Uh, heavily fleshed out parts of star Wars and any kind of references I made, I tried to make them either distant or obscure. For example, near the end, I touched on something that was obviously very big, the idea of a rebellion brewing and a Senator who's helping with that. Right. I implying that perhaps Rashala was in contact with Bail Organa, uh, which is, you know, a huge staple of star Wars. He's a very, uh, very big character with a lot of like written lore. Um, but he was distant. He was far away. You just, you know, knew you existed in the same universe as him. And Ahsoka. <laughs> and, and then, uh, or when I made you guys directly interact with something that was Canon, it was something more obscure, like, the Zillow Beast. Uh, you know, I, I made you guys interact with that directly, but the lore for, uh, but the canon for the Zillow Beast is kind of small and incomplete, and so it felt a little more, it felt a little easier for me to do that. And then you were like, "This is Star Wars stuff. I know about this," but also like, it didn't feel like I was treading on ground that had already been like fully packed in by many, many stories before me. Uh, Gordon's next question was to all the star Wars RPG seems quite complex with their own specialist dice, etc. Do you think it was more difficult to learn and teach than other RPGs because of this? Uh, I think we've covered this a whole bunch. So I think as far as teaching, uh, it's no more difficult or really easy than, than any other RPG system. Um, and then another classic from Gordon. We've heard Addie and Tommy's favorite moments each week. What were everyone's favorite moments from this season? I'll cheat and pick two uh, <laughs> because I'm far away and you can't stop me. <laughs> my first favorite moment, and I think this one is like just barely my favorite moment, is uh, the conversation between Jaxmar and Elkiri after we found Dudo and I get to like be a really good Jedi for five minutes. Um, and that was like a really satisfying scene. And I thought Addie did like such a good job building up to that scene. And like, it felt like she set me up to do something that my character like very much wanted to do for like the whole season. And it was like a really awesome collaboration there. And then my second favorite, just like barely my second favorite is in the same round of combat me and Duda rolled the exact same crit on the crit table to kill the Inquisitor and the Bloodhound. And it's just amazing. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to go with another, like, it's a pretty simple story thing to do, but I just really liked it. There was a point in somewhere in the middle, Elkiri and Jaxamar were talking with each other about like, Hey, should we leave the other two? And then, Tan and I also had a chat, you know, Hey, should we leave the other two? And I mean, you know, it was, it was kind of set up like, cause we can hear what the other people at the table are doing in their scenes. But I just, I don't know. I really liked the symmetry of it and it came at a really nice place in the whole story arc. 
I'm also going to cheat and have two, but one is with an NPC, so it doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> seeing Sucra again, I didn't know how much he meant to Tan until that happened. And I, like, honestly, my heart just was overwhelmed uh, as, as a player. And that was a very nice moment. Uh, but yeah, I think for Tan, I really liked way back in, like, episode two, I think, uh, the moment at which Jaxamar kind of chastises Tan for being drunk, for not really being a team player, for being kind of brash and angry and fighting with Alkiri. I really liked all the backstory that set up between Tan and Jax and all the possibilities it left for all of their stories to kind of come together at the end. I mean, also Tan's fight against the trash can. (laughs) I forgot about that part, but that's also a favorite part. Fun fact, adversary for that trash can. (laughs) Uh, And the final question for post-game chatter, thank you guys so much, uh, all of you, for sending in your questions, uh, is also from Gordon. How do you think your PCs would get on with the well-known Star Wars characters? Would Tan want to try to one-up Han Solo, for example? I mean, not not what she want to. She would do it. Oh shit! <laughs> Throwing down the gauntlet, Harrison Ford, come for me. I mean, stat blocks alone. I think I think the Lancer is at least faster than the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Alkiri and ah- Ahsoka would be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think Oko and R two D two would end up bitter rivals. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that would turn out very well for Oko. <laughs> I think I think Jaxamar was like close enough to sort of like what the new Jedi Order became that like he'd get along okay with with Luke. He'd probably be like real chill with Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. That's all the questions we have. This was a, a record number for us. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who sent in questions. Uh, I hope it was as much fun for you guys listening to as it was for us. Uh, we love answering these questions. We love just decompressing and talking about a campaign after the fact. Uh, so thank you again so much. Next week, we have the bloops coming. And the week after that, we're jumping straight into Series 9. Uh, until then, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We love you all. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, bye now. Bye. 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 This podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions. All rights reserved. This podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, or specifically approved by the Walt Disney Company, Lucasfilm Limited, their subsidiaries, or sister companies, or any Star Wars license holder, and is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, and all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. Go to the official Star Wars website, www.starwars.com, for more information. The Edge of the Empire Age of Rebellion, and Forced in Destiny role-playing games are trademarked properties of Fantasy Flight Games Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more information, go to www.fantasyflightgames.com slash en slash Star Wars RPG.